Well, we're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 9. As you turn there and ask the question, who is Matthew? Um, His name means gift of God. He's the beloved writer of the first gospel. He introduces to us the Messiah and beautifully unites for us the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. He teaches us what it means to be disciples of Christ, to follow after him. And he does this by masterfully weaving together for us narrative, narratives of Jesus's life, along with these larger teaching blocks uh, that Jesus gave to us. It is because of Matthew that we learn about the great star of Bethlehem at the birth of our Lord, where we learn about the Magi from the East and where we learn about the great escape of Joseph and Mary and little baby Jesus from the hands of Herod, who sought to take his life when he was born. Matthew provides for us a rich picture of Jesus's teaching, and he includes for us stories that are missing from the other gospel accounts, stories about pearls and nets and hidden treasures and coins and vineyards and brothers and sheep and goats. We adore Matthew. What we sometimes forget is that Matthew once went by another name, Levi. Levi was a despised man. His story For those of us who desire a cleaned, buttoned-up version of the faith is quite scandalous and quite disgraceful. Matthew is the guy in our world that we love to hate. He's a liar and a cheat. He's dirty and he's greedy. And certainly this is a guy that can't belong to a world that we are trying to create for ourselves and build and protect. Matthew is a tax collector, a member of the Society of the Deplorables. But what we learn from Matthew is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such people. Matthew is me. He's you. His story is our story, and it's a story we must not soon forget. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Hear the word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, that is Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I grew up in the great metropolis of Hoxie, Kansas. It was a wonderful place to live out my childhood. It's a small town. Population less than Andy Griffith's uh, Mayberry, but it wasn't without its big city amenities. We had a stoplight, just one. It actually only blinked two colors. It was red for traffic going north and south and yellow for going east and west. But nonetheless, it was a stoplight. We also had chain restaurants. Again, just one. And it was only on Fridays. And... uh, I know, right? I mean, I got one laugh this morning. I thought that'd be funnier. 
But uh, it really isn't a joke that it was just on Fridays. There was an RV that had been converted into a kitchen, um, and somehow they had become a pizza, pizza Hut franchise, and they pulled into town on Fridays, and literally the whole town called in and had takeout delivery Pizza Hut pizza. It was absolutely incredible, a big deal. Hoxie, Kansas. I think about my childhood, and I, I just don't know how you can't have fond memories of growing up in a town like that. But from time to time, I'm reminded of some not-so-fond memories. And often, those memories are about me making life not-so-fond for others. A number of years ago, my dad was back in the old stomping ground, and he ran into one of my old baseball coaches. And this baseball coach, he was a tough-nosed, hard-working, take-no-grief kind of guy. And I was a young, cocky stubborn, not impressed with you coach kind of kid. And so you can imagine that he and I got along really, really well. And um, as they were talking, uh, this, this old coach said, well, well, what's Ryan up to these days? And, and my dad said, well, he's, he's a pastor in Florence. And no kidding, this man looked at my dad and said, it will be a cold day before I believe that Ryan Randolph is a pastor. It's a memory that I have, and it's a funny for me to think about it. It's also sad um, to think about, but it's also a great help to me. Because if there is something that I am prone to do, it's to forget where I came from. It's to forget my need for the mercy of God. Uh, you see... This will surprise like one of you in here. This guy before you is not all that much different than that cocky, stubborn, not impressed with you kind of kid from years ago. Because too often I think way too much of myself, way too little of others. And quite frankly, I just think wrongly about God. And you know, let's be honest. I don't think that I'm alone here because I think it is our sinful nature for us to forget our need For the mercy of God. We are all prone to develop inflated views of ourselves, to cast others away in indifference or maybe even worse in contempt, and to misunderstand the heart of God and what He truly desires for us as people called to imitate Him. And we see this reality for us in the text, in the reaction of the Pharisees. You see, Jesus is dining with these people, this group of people that they would look at and consider the society of the deplorables. And they come and they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this question is not a question of information or curiosity. It's a question of contempt or disapproval. In the gospel count in Luke We are told that they come and they grumble to the disciples. They're not happy. And they did so because to them, these people were the scum of the earth. Tax collectors. They were the people who fed upon the poor, often used extortion to line their own profits. And sinners was a broad category that they would use to lump together all those that they would see as shameful in society. The thieves, criminals, prostitutes, the like as well as all those that they would consider to be ceremonially unclean. They were the outcasts of the day. And for a teacher or a rabbi 
to sit down and to have dinner, to dine with someone was considered to be more of an intimate association with them rather than just mere teaching them. And for them, no respectable rabbi would associate with such people, let alone come and sit down and dine and enjoy and befriend these people as if he had accepted them and their friendship. And so the religious leaders, they cast their rebuke. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, what laid beneath their seemingly righteous indignation was their own self-righteousness. The belief that they were indeed better than the guy next door. They were worthy in and of themselves to receive the pleasure of God. They had forgotten their own depravity their own need for the mercy of God. And as teachers of God's word, they really should have known better. I mean, the history of Israel, the history of mankind is proof that all men are prone to evil and sinners in need of God's mercy. And you think through the hall of fame of Israel's characters, and they are marked by failure and dependence upon God's mercy. We think about Adam, the very first one, (laughs) Abraham, Moses, Uh, we're going to see in judges as Bill preaches through that, that they, the judges themselves, as good as, as glorious as they may seem, they are a downward spiral of the quality of their character as you work through their, the book. You think of David and his failings and Solomon, and this is nothing of, of just the nation of Israel and the countless generations that prove that covenant disloyalty and unfaithfulness is just the standard operating procedure for mankind. They should have known. They should have seen this tendency within themselves, but they were blind to the past. They were deaf to the word of God, and they were ignorant of their own true nature. Jesus said that the summary of the law and prophets is to love God and to love your neighbor. And the religious leaders were amiss at both points. They did not truly know God and thus were not right with him. And they did not understand and live out the true nature of the heart of God toward their neighbor. And for all of us, this is an easy trap for us to fall into. We are prone to forget our need of the mercy of God. But the good news for us today is this. God is merciful. We spent our entire liturgy up to this point declaring the great name of the Lord, our merciful Father, shown to us in Jesus, made known to us by the Spirit. And so let's not miss this today, that God is merciful. And this, this passage shows us, it demonstrates his mercy, and it really moves us in two directions. This, this passage moves us, to draws us to Jesus as we see his mercy, the mercy of God, come to these needy sinners. And, and, and then second, it draws us or moves us toward those in need. And we see this as Jesus calls his people to imitate him, to imitate his bold and genuine love. And so first, let's consider how the mercy of God draws us to Jesus. The tax collectors, they were seen as traitors. They were uh, Jews. 
working for the Romans. They collected taxes, and when they did so, they intentionally cheated their own people, often skimming off the top, preying on the weak for their own financial gain, and violence certainly was in play to accomplish this task. Suffice to say that they were considered a rotten group of people amongst the Jewish people. And, and Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus comes and he seeks him out while he's sitting at the tax booth. Now, the tax booth um, was, was, was sort of like a toll booth. It was a booth to tax people and goods as they passed through a region. It would have been situated in a very high volume area where people and goods pass through. And when Jesus approaches him, he says, follow me. And we don't really have any preliminary um, information about any interactions between Matthew and Jesus. This very well may have been the very first time that Matthew knew anything of Jesus. That's certainly possible. More likely, given what has happened in Capernaum to this point, like, likely Matthew probably had heard something, at least. Maybe he'd heard much about this, this startling man named Jesus, what he's done, what he said. Or perhaps Matthew has already uh, encountered him uh, from a distance or up close in some way. We're not really sure. But either way, when Jesus looks at him, he says, follow me. This is an enlistment. It's a declaration of Jesus that I want you. I will be your teacher, your rabbi your friend, your Lord. You will learn from me. You will be loved by me. And you will serve as my witnesses to the world. Follow me. And, and we hear that and, and we read by it. We really should stop and just be amazed by it. I mean, think about this. Think about who Matthew is sitting in this tax booth, how he's seen. And we'd be amazed that Jesus would want one such as this, that he would want him to be his friend and his brother, that he would want to share his life with someone that was so hated and despised in his day, that he, we would be amazed that Jesus would risk his own reputation before a certain group of people for the sake of this sinner. And not just simply for Matthew, but for his friends as well, for the rest of the dregs of society, that they might come and be a part and that they would get to experience the very friendship of God as Jesus entered in and he sat with them and he talked with them and he dined with them. Indeed, I, I think he actually enjoyed them. A friend to them. What an incredible picture of the kindness and mercy of God. And indeed, it is a, a, a beautiful thing to think of this God who would look, not just Matthew, but he would look at you and I and say, I want you. And you're here today. I don't know what, what you brought in here this morning. I don't know the, the depths of the guilt that you experience, the shame that you carry with you. I don't know your fears or your struggles that you face. And regardless of your experience, no matter where you've been and what you've done, and no matter the, the deep wounds that you might carry in your life, the heart of God is this, of a loving Father who enters in with you. And He does so at our most vulnerable points 
and there he touches us. And he doesn't do so in a way that, that is meant to wound, but to soothe and to comfort, to heal and to restore. And it's a universal invitation. He invites us to come and to bask in the very mercy of God. And Jesus, when he says, follow me, Matthew, amazing. He gets up. He follows him. He just leaves everything. It's a definitive change in the course of his life. He leaves his profession, his practices, his life. The very mercy of God draws Matthew out. And he responds by following Jesus, trusting him for what might come next in his life. You see, uh, Matthew, we're told this story because he serves as an example, a picture, a story of the love and mercy of God. His, his name means gift of God. It's, he is God's gift to us. We look at him. We look at his life. And when we do so, we see God's mercy toward him. And thus our faith and enjoyment of God grows. And this is something that God is pleased to do. He often gives us pictures and stories and examples, gifts to draw us to Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, I think this is an extra my notes. So I hope so. Uh, it's Ephesians that there's a list of, of, of gifts that God has given to the church. Okay. You can raise your hand if I'm in the wrong book, but I'm pretty sure it's Ephesians. Um, but he gives these gifts to us and he says he's given us preachers and evangelists and, and teachers. And think about what these gifts are. They're people. And they just give us teachings and evangelism. He gives us people. God has given us you and me to stand as gifts to one another that we might gather together and see something of the mercy of God. I mean, this is why, one, of the, one of the reasons that we are called to gather together corporately in corporate worship so that we can look around and, and, and replay one another's stories in our minds and just learn to revel in the love and mercy of God. For many years, I, I participated at the communion table. And, 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 and I kept myself wholly focused upon my own need, my own need of God's mercy that he gives to me in Christ Jesus. And that's good. We ought to be amazed. We ought to come to the communion table and consider how the Lord has sought us individually and invited us to dine with him. But a number of years ago, I, I sat right there beside where my wife is sitting right now, and I began to watch you. And as we came to the communion table, I was overwhelmed as I saw each of us. And I replayed our stories in my mind. And I saw how God is merciful to us. You are a picture of God's mercy to the church. You are a sweet reminder that Jesus is a friend of sinners and he has given us one another so that 
our experience of his mercy might grow sweeter and sweeter over the years. And this really ought to inform us in how we understand church. I mean, it's easy for us in our day to treat church as an enterprise, giving away certain commodities. And when we do this, we begin to think of church in terms of what it does and doesn't give, give us. And, and when we begin to think this way, it's easy for us to just, to just leave it behind when the church isn't giving or doing what we think we need or what we want. But here's the thing. You and I, like Matthew, are gifts of God. And when we don't make ourselves known and available, we all suffer. We really do. We may not realize it, but we do all suffer. If I may be so bold to say this, if the church doesn't have something for you, that's okay. Because you have something for the church and it's you. And that's enough for us to make ourselves known and available to one another. Because we look at one another and we go, wow, God is merciful. How can I help but not love this Jesus? So God's mercy, he draws us to Jesus. He does this by his mercy. We're reminded of that mercy through the very people of God. Jesus also calls us or draws us uh, to those in need. As we look at God's mercy uh, and we see him drawing near to these tax collectors and sinners, we realize that we are to imitate him as his disciples, to imitate his bold and courageous love. The indignation of the Pharisees provides a wonderful opportunity for Jesus to remind us of the very heart of God. And he says this, he says, those who are well, this is in response to their question. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who think themselves well have no reason to seek healing. Of course, under God's examination, these men were in fact very sick, but they refused to see it. And thus they refused to seek the one who had the remedy. It sort of reminds me of the person who has a serious health issue, but refuses to admit it and seek help because he would rather die thinking himself to be healthy than to confirm a diagnosis and, and face whatever may come next. And, and, and the real impact for Matthew comes when Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When he says, go and learn what this means, it, it really does sound like a fairly tame kind of introduction to the quotation I'm about to give. But, but it was more than that. It was a rabbinic expression. And it was meant to rebuke foolish ignorance. Like you can just imagine some Pharisee in the back when he hears Jesus say it being like, oh, no, he didn't. Right. I mean, it's a biting remark that he provides them and they knew exactly what he's getting at. And, and the reason he does that is because they fail to understand the very heart of God. They thought righteousness was about fulfilling certain regulations of the covenant. But for Jesus, righteousness 
is God's mission to needy people. The healer has come to get his hands dirty. And the quotation is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And there the prophet is calling the people to show loyal love. The Old Testament word chesed, it's, it, it, it's steadfast love, it's, it's loving kindness, it's mercy, it's, it's covenant love. It's a love that is bound, that it's loyal. God has bound himself to his people. We are bound together in him by love, through love, and for love. And we can think about God's interaction with his people in this, this way. That the, that the love of the father and the son's love, or I'm sorry, the love of the father for his son and the son's love for his father so abounded and it so overflowed that he just couldn't help but to create and to share that wondrous love so that we might be wrapped up in it. God created in order to share himself and he bound himself He bound himself to his people in this covenant love. And for us to be in covenant with him means that we are to imitate the very heart of our God to go and do likewise. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, when he says this, we should not think that God uh, commanded sacrifice, but didn't actually mean it, that he didn't actually care about it. God calls his people to both mercy and sacrifice. But, But here's the point. Keeping the letter of the law apart from the spirit of the law is actually a failure at both. You see, God's priority is that of compassion, love, And mercy, because love is the reason he created and love is the reason that he redeems. This is the very purpose of Christ's mission. And Jesus refers to that mission at the end of verse 13. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was not was not there to pat the well satisfied on the back, but he was there to enter in. And he continues to enter in to befriend, touch, and heal sinners. The Pharisees, they were ready to let this group of people die in their sins, but not Jesus. He came to call sinners. Now, Luke notes that Jesus Um, said he came not to call sinners to repentance. Now, Matthew just lets repentance be understood. And, you know, the preacher can't say everything about everything. We just have to give him some grace here that that Matthew left this to be understood. But, But I think it's actually more than that. I think Matthew did so because he wanted to emphasize something more specific. Because Matthew is satisfied to just simply leave us amazed at the great love and friendship of God for sinners. Just, just that. Wow. He, he leaves us to dwell on that truth. And he does so, so that we as, as his disciples, as people who are imitators of Jesus, would learn to go and do likewise. That we would be friends of sinners like you and me.
In John chapter 13, Jesus says this. Verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Again, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That really is an incredible calling. That's amazing that God would have the audacity to say that the way in which the world will know him is the way in which we as his people would love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. I have a book on my bookshelf. I picked up a number of years ago because of the title. It's entitled Sacred Friendship. Um, must confess, I've never read it. Um, it's on a very long list of books I want to read that I probably won't. Um, but but I'll, I'll admit that that title of the book by itself has actually done more to shape and transform my life than, than many entire books that I've read. Sacred Friendship. You think about that. Just that little word in front of friendship, sacred, gives it some weight. You begin to filter it through the lens of God himself. And you realize that friendship is a holy and a sacred calling. And it is so because it imitates the very heart of our father who seeks to connect with us in our isolation. And by imitating him, we become sacred friends in the lives of those who understand something of this isolation. God has called you and me to imitate his very heart in the lives of people in need. And all we really have to do is just be a friend. Sacred friendship Such love, such friendship is deeply satisfying. It intrigues, it attracts, it compels. It really does dazzle the soul when you experience it. I mean, people know when they've, they, when they're a project or they've been reduced to a notch on our Christian belts. But what will surprise them is a friend who loves. One who genuinely desires to know who they are simply because of who they are. Sacred friends, we surprise with grace. We show people that they are beautiful, valuable, that they have worth and dignity, not because of what they do or don't do, but because they are a person with a name, one who is designed by God. We love them for them because that's exactly the kind of love that the Father has given to us. And so we go and do likewise. Sacred Friendship. And, and this passage, I think, really does give us three, three ways. It helps us give us um, three examples of ways in which we can imitate this kind of love, this kind of freak, sacred friendship in our world. And the first is that we imitate the friendship of Jesus by being humble. The failure of the Pharisees was a failure to see that they had far more in common with this group of people than they were different. 
There is only one cast of people in the kingdom of God. The sinner. And we may look different. We may talk different. We may smell different. We may think different. We may live different. But we are all the same. We are sinners in need of God's mercy. People in need of sacred friendship. And honestly, there's only been one man who was ever too good to identify with sinners. And his name was Jesus. But rather than withdrawing, he humbled himself. He was so driven by his love and mercy and compassion towards people that he entered in to become our friends. Paul says this, and being found in human form, he entered in. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friendship takes great humility. Second, imitating the sacred friendship of Jesus calls us to be courageous. It really was a bold move for Jesus. His action here, it it flies in the face of the moral majority of the day. Entering into another's life is not always easy, and it involves a lot of risk, right? We risk sacrifice, sacrifices of desire, of time, of resources, of comfort. We risk being hurt, being betrayed, being used. We may risk our reputation before some. Assumptions may be made of us. We might be accused of ignoring the truth, of wavering from the faith or our convictions or accommodating our culture. That's okay. Jesus was full of truth and grace. And sometimes it gets a little bit messy, but our courage, our bold friendship very well may be our love. Let me just say this. As we courageously enter in and take these risks, we're not always going to get it right. Our world is is messy. It's gray. It's difficult. And it takes much wisdom for us to get it right. But can we just at least agree on one thing? Can we agree that we're going to give one another the grace to try and the grace to fail as we seek to live out this bold love in front of the world. Let's not jump to judgments of one another, but seek to empower one another to take the gospel and to apply it and to use it and to display it and and to share it in the very gray, messy days and situations that we face. Because at the end of the day, God has called us to be in this together. We need one another if we are going to have this kind of love, this kind of courage as Christians in the world. And it will be for God's glory. Because it will imitate him. Third, imitating the sacred friendship of Jesus calls us to be genuine. 
Jesus was fully engaged because he genuinely cared about people. Right? I mean, you don't leave the Father's side in glory and become the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world unless you really mean it. And Jesus really meant it. And as people who are, are called to imitate him, we're called to really mean it, to learn to be curious and to love other people's stories, to ask questions, and, and actually want to, to, to hear the answers. We learn to enjoy knowing people and connecting with them because we realize that their story is sacred. Because it's a story being written by God himself, and he is writing you and I into that story as sacred friends that, that's, that they may see and experience and know something of the great mercy of God. The mercy of God draws us to those in need and we do so by imitating his sacred friendship with humility, courage, and genuineness. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, at the, the close of, of this time, I, I want to leave you with two words. Spaghetti face. I know that was a turn emotionally, wasn't it? Um, spaghetti face. Now, the danger of doing an illustration like this is that we will all walk out of here and remember two words. Spaghetti face. Um, but do me a favor. There's a point. Don't lose the point. Okay? We all know the glory of a toddler eating spaghetti with her bare hands. Right? It's adorable. It's disgusting. And it's completely disastrous. I mean, the spaghetti is not only on their hands... Right. But it's on their arms. It's all over, you know, the face. It's it's on the chest. It's in their lap. It's it's on the head and in the, the in the ears. You know, it's on the floor all around them. It gets splattered on the walls uh, that are beside them. And when you move out of your house, you're going to find some of that spaghetti sauce on top of your light fixture in the other room. Right? I mean, it literally is everywhere and it can never be completely cleaned up. And we all know what every what every parent looks like when they're trying to clean them up, right? The nose is a little wrinkled. There's the occasional eye roll and, and they're kind of standing like this with the rag and they're desperately trying to wipe their hands and, and the face and, 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 you know, the tray and, and all of that. But, but the kid is constantly just sort of ruining or erasing all the progress that you're making. Because that kid is sitting there grabbing their lap and pulling spaghetti out and grabbing the table and finding all the spaghetti you haven't found yet and then wiping it all over the places that you've just, just wiped off. And at some point, the parent just is, is completely done. They give up and they just decide to make the decision to grab the kid and make a dash to the bathtub. And we all know what that looks like as well, don't we? Yeah, there you go. Right? And so you're walking on there. Now, I want you to imagine, let's just pretend for a moment that, that poor mom trips over a Lego block. It hurts enough. She falls over and the kid goes flying or dad in the slippery fingers, isn't really paying attention. And the poor kid just kind of drops, drops out from underneath him. And, and this kid is hurt. And, and what happens in that moment? Comfort happens, right? Suddenly no longer is this kid picked up, right? 
but they're embraced. Suddenly, the needs of that child comes into focus. And no longer are we concerned about their spaghetti face being all over our shirt or their spaghetti hands being on the back of our necks. Mercy wins. And over the course of a child's lifetime, these merciful moments teach that kid what it means to be your child. And they come to cherish such love. So that when they too grow up and become a parent, they will have learned how to love in the very same way. Jesus embraced us. I got to do it. I'm a preacher. Even when we had spaghetti on our faces. He doesn't mind. In fact, I think he even enjoys our little spaghetti hands on the back of his neck. And he calls us to embrace others in the very same way. And so, let's go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And to do so, we might just have to try it out. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Let's pray. Father, mercy. You love us in a way that we really can't imagine. We try. You've given us your word. You've given us one another that we might see something of it. And yet still we realize that it far, it is far greater um, than we could ever ask or imagine. And so for that, we are grateful. Because we really do want a God who's so much greater than what our minds can conceive and a love that is deeper than we could ever, could ever imagine. And so I pray that you would be at work in us as a church, that we might learn to revel in your mercy and your grace, that we might be a people so amazed by you that we just can't help but to worship and honor you with our lives, that when you call us to follow you, not just once but every day, that we would rise, get up, and come after you, trusting you with what may come next. And I pray that as we come to experience your heart and your love and your mercy upon us, that we would be such a people that we would go and do likewise, not out of obligation, but out of great joy, that we would be a merciful people. Father, give us wisdom. We don't always know exactly what this looks like and, and, and what this means and how to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news, into the world and, and what it looks like to be friends of sinners. Um, but I know this, Father, we wouldn't have imagined Jesus sitting with tax collectors and sinners. And so give us wisdom to know what it looks like in our day to go and do likewise. Father, teach us to be friends, but not mere associates, but but sacred friends, people who genuinely care, are bold to enter in and are gentle because we have much humility because we understand our own needs. Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.